Hey, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Mack. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackey. Hi, it's Grant Haggerty. Hi, I'm Cheryl Smith from the Wallery. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not the Footage. Yes, you're indeed listening to another podcast of Not the Footy Show. And as usual, we've got a really great guest lined up for you today. He was one of my heroes when I was growing up. He was the former goalkeeper for Swindon Town. But the reason we're talking to him in the main is because back in the 70s, he stood by his beliefs and made himself unavailable. And at the moment, when a lot of people are coming out saying they believe this, are they standing by their beliefs? Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Wayne. John, good to be back. It is. It's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it? It has been, and uh, there's been plenty happening. A lot of people with opinions out there at the moment. Wow, haven't we had a lot of things at World Cups? How many World Cups do we have going on at the same time? I think it was about three or four, wasn't it? The Rugby League, there was the T20. And and the Wheelchair Rugby League. Yeah. We're all on at the same time. So that's Um, about five with the T20 men's. Yeah, there was the Women's Rugby Union as well. Yeah, there was too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I hardly even realised it was on. It was just so much. Wayne Smith, oh, you've got to take your hat off to that guy. What a coach he is. Yeah. I mean, he was involved with the All Blacks with Graham Henry, then to take the uh, women to the World Cup as well. He is, and he's such a nice guy as well. He's one of the most humble men you'll ever meet. And uh, it's just, it's almost like so much, it's an overload, and it's a, it's almost at the point where, oh, do we have too much international sport? It, nothing can get the opportunity to breathe anymore. Well, I wonder how many of these have all been because they were pushed back because oh, of COVID. So we've suddenly work. got bleh, all these World Cups at the same time. Yeah. But hopefully we go back to them being a little bit more staggered. And, of course, the, um, the Football World Cup on at the moment. Sure is. Uh, which sort of leads us a little bit into the, the conversation for today because um, over the last few weeks when we, we haven't had the opportunity to talk, but sponsorship has become an issue in sport, but not for the reasons we normally get, sponsors normally get associated with sports. And it was a time when um, it was players and codes that used to have to watch watch their behaviour because sponsors held that, you know, would pull yep. their money out. Or that, well, Qantas and Israel Folau is a prime it, example. Exactly. You know, that. You always had to tread lightly because you were protective of the sponsor's money. Seems now athletes are turning that table a little bit on 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 the sponsors. And, and maybe it's a good thing in that sponsors now have to toe a certain line as well. Otherwise, you know, sports will ditch them. No, your money isn't good enough for us anymore. Uh, hasn't happened that way yet. Well, if, if we look at it, and, and I mean, the, the one I'm thinking of, first of all, is if the conversation that we're told happened between the captain of the Australian cricket team, Pat Cummins, and the CEO of Cricket Australia, where he said, we're not very happy with the major sponsor, which I think is Alinta Energy, is it? Yeah. Or Alinta Gas? Uh, Alinta uh, Energy, I think, yeah. Um, and they supposedly are putting in, is it 400 or 40 million, isn't it, or something? It's a big yeah. amount of money. It's a big amount of money. To me, the CEO needs to show some balls, quite simply. You know, you're in charge of the sport. You sit there and you go, okay, Pat, that's great. Thank you for sharing your concerns. We hear them. You've got two options. One is you and your fellow players take a pay cut, and we will get rid of the sponsor. The second option is you go out and you find us a sponsor to replace it. And to me, that is leadership. And you don't just pussyfoot around 
Pat Cummins' job is to play cricket. It's to go out there, captain the Australian team, and win as many games as possible and be a great ambassador for the sport and for the country. Does, uh, does a player have a right? I think they have a right. I think I mean, there should be consultation, definitely, I think, in terms of today. But if a player, as we saw with South Africa, prime example, Hashim Amla, of course, being a Muslim, didn't want to wear Castle Lager on his shirt because he's not allowed to drink, and they, you know, that's his belief. Castle Lager, superb. They said, no, we totally understand. He didn't have to wear the logo. Now, that, to me, that is, again, good management of a sponsorship a deal. It didn't affect the finances of that sponsorship deal, but it was common sense and respect on both sides, and it worked. Okay, so that's on that's on the basis of religion, right? Okay, yep. let's. Okay, yep. so what what are the criteria for being able to take a stand like that? Well, if, I think if if I go, I I don't like Holdens, I only like Fords. I'm not going to. How far do we take that extreme of, a, of a, an athlete being able to dictate what is allowed and what's not allowed? Well, well, we touched on this again, if you remember, several podcasts ago when we spoke with David Mitchell. Um, and he was saying that that's where, as players progress in their careers, you have to have these conversations if you're running the sport well or the team or the club well. And you have these conversations and you manage those. And it is something that you have to do. And I, and I mean, look, you saw exactly that with Hyundai were a sponsor of, you know, the FA for a number of years. And A-League clubs got given so many Hyundais for, to give to players. Now, I didn't see any player actually complaining about it. Yeah, I saw, I remember the CEO of Football West, he didn't want to drive it because he wanted to be seen in his Porsche. That's his choice. He didn't have to drive it. But, uh, you know, I, I think when it comes to things like that, those cars were available if you wanted them. If you didn't want to use it, as the CEO didn't, he would prefer to be seen in his Porsche. Then fair enough. Well, I don't know who coined the phrase originally, but I do know this was used by uh, uh, someone from that other sport and identity who's known for shooting his mouth off sometimes. But the price of piety is hypocrisy. And that's what some of these athletes are learning. The one that kicked it all off, though, involved netball. When a player went to their team management and told them that they had reservations about wearing the sponsor's name, and we all know how that blew up in the end. Now, that particular person and the the players copped a, a huge amount of backlash for that, probably more than Cummins did, probably, and and people went after them big time on social media. You know, accusing of hypocrisy and biting the hand that feeds you and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think they, they, they really looked at the situation and sat back from it a little bit. Um, you know, and, and it, it, the, the, the reaction from Hancock prospecting via Gina Reinhardt shows you that this was a deeply, deeply sensitive area to be going into. And, um, Gina, it, it's all about family, mate. I'll tell you right out. It's all about family. Gina has used her lawyers many, many times over the years to protect her father's legacy. And this is about her father. It's not about Gina. It's about the father. And frankly, I don't have any problem at all with an Aboriginal woman from the Midwest of WA standing up and saying, I don't want to wear Hancock on my shirt. 
And I'm not going to say any more, but you do a little bit of digging and a little bit of research and you'll understand why she might have had major reservations about wanting that name on her playing shirt. But again, could that have been managed better? I think it could have been. Absolutely, it could have been managed better. But, uh, and, and so, the, to me, this is where, if, you, if you're going to say sport is a business, then you have to manage those situations better than some of these sports are. And, I mean, you've known me a long time now. And, you're, and, and it's not just the sport that could have handled this better. Hancock Prospecting has a lot to say. Both parties. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, again, but it, it is managing the expectations of your sponsor, managing your players. It, you've got to do it. That's how the world supposedly is meant to work, that we all have to give a little bit on some things. I mean, I'll give you an example. You've known when we used to do uh, the Perth Glory coverage, when the A-League started, no one else in this town wanted to do it. It's a 990 information radio where this show started, did the broadcast. Now, when I was doing that, we had one of the sponsors was a betting company. And I don't actually like betting, betting and I've had issues in my family, not with me, but where there are people who've had their lives affected by gambling. So that's why I'm pretty much against it. And I said I don't want to read out those advertisements on air. So I actually didn't do them when we were doing it on the radio. Robbie Zabika used to do those on behalf of it because I said I don't want to do that. So that was my stance then. Then when I went on to work for Fox Sports, suddenly, again, we got a sponsor, and I was told I had to do it, and it was a section that was a pay-for section. I had the quandary. Do I do it? Do I walk away from it? In the end, I made the decision, I'll do it, but I will literally only say what I've been asked to say. I will not say anything beyond that. Now, I did actually get bollocked for that, because I was told the section's meant to last so long, and when you do it, you're doing it too quickly and it's too short. I said, well, I'll be honest, I don't actually understand what I'm saying, because I don't know what uppers and downers or whatever they were called, I can't remember what they were called, above the line or below the line. Yeah. It was, and I said, I don't understand it, and I'm not interested in it. Look, I'm carrying out what you've asked me to do, end of. And in the, after that moment, it was okay. But sometimes you have to get there's a bit of give and take, but you can also kind of still stick to your principles on other occasions I mean it, it, it would there would be very very few of us who don't fall under that um, hypocrite banner yeah. uh, uh, purely through the companies we work for yeah. You can you can draw a line all over the place. So, you know, say you work for BHP oh well BHP did this in 1928 and whatever you know yeah <laughs> You can dig back a long time. To oh, listen, we, we've all up. sped in a car. We've all done things we shouldn't have done at some point in our lives. But, but I think there's got to be a little bit of negotiation. And I, I think some of the – you used the word pious. And I think some of the players today are we, using their positions and becoming far too pious. Well, what we're seeing at the moment in the World Cup is just an extension of um, – what was the term I used before? <laughs> before we started recording, I had it all. Cultural imperialism. It, 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 there's a great deal of cultural imperialism going on at the moment where these people think, oh, well, I'm going to make a stand on this. But you're a soccer player. Play soccer. There was a time when sport prided itself on separating itself from all of these other issues. No, we're sport. We're just sport. Everybody can play. We're not interested in all of that sort of stuff. Just come and play sport. Now sport has become a vehicle for it. Sports have their own social agendas. What 
Just play your bloody sport. Leave the social agendas to the socialists. That's who should be doing that stuff. Well, we're going to hear now from a man who did stick to his principles back then, and I want to follow on this theme, actually, after the interview with Jimmy Allen, but uh, it's something, John, I think you're absolutely right, that we've got to get back to. When it players come out, it's just about the game. Forget the rest, nothing else, um, and that should be it. But uh, The other good thing that seems to have come out of this is people are starting to talk about having sponsorship on national jerseys. Because I hate, I hate sponsors on a national jersey. So do I. I've got nothing against clubs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's the way that sport works. That's how you get money. But, but national associations should not have to get shirt sponsors. It breaks my heart every time I watch a game of cricket now how the England jumper has become exactly. a billboard. Yeah. And yeah. the shirts as well. And it, it just, as I say, it just the purity of cricket and, and representing your national team is gone. And if you try and argue that you have to, oh, no, we have to. It's very important. That's rubbish. It's, all you have to do is look at the NFL in America. That It just makes billions and billions of dollars. It's just a behemoth of an organisation. They still understand what's important with the jersey because you don't see Panasonic splashed all across the front of the Patriots. And we're not getting any Panasonic products for John's plug. This is Gary Lineker, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, as I mentioned, we've got a very special guest on the show, someone I wanted to catch up with for a long time in that he was one of my heroes when I was growing up, one of the reasons I became a goalkeeper. But he had his principles, and he stuck by those during his playing career, and it cost him. Our guest on this show is Jimmy Allen. Jimmy Allen, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thanks very much, Ashley. Sorry it's taking me so long to to be in touch, but so uh, glad we're here now. No, it's been worth the wait, I can tell you that. I mean, I hope it is. <laughs> well, first of all, I wanted to take you back because, I mean, I, I believe you were born in Inverness, which is, you know, in the I north was. of Scotland. And uh, you sort yep. of think, how did you end up in a, in a place like Swindon, which was so far away? Well, that's very true. Um, I was born in Inverness, but I lived actually on um, over across the Black Isle, across the Cromwelly Firth to the Murray Firth side on a peninsula between the suitors of Cromarty and Port Mahomet, the lighthouse in a very uh, fishing village. Um, obviously, my Alan partner name was from um, the east coast, Aberdeenshire, down around that way to, to Stirling. Uh, but my grandmother, from where I lived, was a Ross from Ross and Cromarty. Uh, and we lived in a village called Ballantour Seaside Village, um, which was great to, to grow up, very much a football village, and um, players from that area played for Ross County. I played for Bora at um, 15 for about 11 games, and, and Swindon um, uh, went down there and they, they wanted to sign me. But uh, it was basically from, because there was a, a reporter called John Ross, who used to play football for Kings and Duffers, and my father played for the Seaside Rovers in Ballantour, and um, he got me down through that connection. 
because he, he was a, a mutual friend of Fred Ford at Swindon at the time. Yeah, we, we hear a lot today about, you know, young players being taken away from home, but you must have been pretty young when you came down south to, to Swindon, and it must have been quite a daunting prospect, I would have thought. It was very daunting. I was 16, but um, prior to that, when I was 15, I went down to Northampton twice, and um, Dave Bourne would have signed me there, but I was about five foot five, and he said too small for a football league goalkeeper so I went away a bit when I came back down to Swindon I was 5 foot 10 and I, I was an apprentice joiner so I was physically very strong and, and growing all the time so that side didn't worry me the physical element of football but being away um, we had a hostel by the ground which housed about 10, 10 young boys so it was we had a, a good um, relationship and um uh, the staff were good at run the hostel and um, it went from there really and Fred Ford was a brilliant manager very caring and he used to send me home every opportunity so I came down in October sent me home for Christmas um, that year I went um, on I signed October um, <coughs> 1970 in the summer of um, May uh, 1971 I went with um the first team on the Anglo-Italian tour, so it was quite incredible, really. Yeah, that must have been yeah, really small, special, yeah. Well, international football for a, for a young guy to be good as reserve goalkeeper, Pete Downshaw was quite incredible, really. So it, it was just fantastic to to have been with the first team for that time in Italy. They'd won it previously, and um, this time we played um, Bologna and Sampdoria, two great teams, and. Uh, it was a brilliant experience. I'm sure it was. And, I mean, presumably you weren't, or you, you must have been knocking on the door, but I suppose you didn't expect to make your debut as a 17-year-old, which is something that you did against QPR. That was totally unexpected because um, I was down the reserve team to go to West Ham, and as was Kenny Stroud, and we both played at the same time, same game. And uh, we were on the coach, and... Uh, I didn't notice we never normally had two keepers because Roy Jones came on. I thought, God, I ain't got to get a game today. I was really disappointed. Fred Ford called us over uh, and he said, um, need to speak to you and Kenny. Can he come off? And we said, Fred, but we were due to play. He said, yes, you're still playing, but you're playing here today. <laughs> he didn't know what to say, really, because we were dumbfounded, really. And... Uh, so I went back to um, my digs and Kenny went home and uh, we came in an hour before for the game. It was easy for me. I just had to walk across. No one knew me. And uh, one saw this little guy go about five foot ten and think, oh, gosh, we're going to get hammered today. But in fact, we did all right. There was no score. So with two um, virtually first-year uh, professionals, it was quite incredible that we... We, we held our own against a, a great QPR team. Yeah, I mean, they had some players then, and I mean, it, not a bad oh, start, a, a clean, clean sheet on your debut against those players as well. Yeah, quite incredible. They had um, Venables for a start. I know he was ageing, but still a great player. Uh, they had Phil Parks and Goal, they had Clements, what, Fullback, um, you, you name it. They had... Uh, uh, they had... Uh, Rodney Marsh playing. It was quite incredible. Thomas on the wing. Uh, yeah. Uh, and Stan Bowles, 
who was just such an entertainer. So it had a star telling a stellar team. Like if I thought about it, I I, I wouldn't have got out of the loo. But you know, it was just one of these experiences that you had to get out there and, and appreciate, really. And, and we did. We, I mean, we enjoyed the, our game. And one of the things so I, we, I find incredible as well is about that era where today, you know, there's a coach for everything, almost a coach for eating your lunch. But in your day, they were not even goalkeeping coaches, were they? There was nothing. There was no goalkeeping coaches. Um, the first thing I knew about goalkeeping coaches was when Jim Barring came to Swindon. Uh, I had some bone removed from my arm, and it was clear that I wasn't going to play for a while. And um, but Jim came in anyway, just to strengthen the, the squad. And um, he was just an amazing coach. He coached myself and Mark Bosnich. You know, Mark Bosnich had his greatest season at Villa when Jim Barron was there. And, you know, under Jim Barron, I was playing really, really well because we, we, you know, we were getting that specialist one-to-one that we didn't quite have before. It, it, Mike Barron was a great coach, but, you know, you, you can't coach everyone. You, you should, you, you're trying to coach defenders, forwards, so you do need people that will specialise in your bracket. Absolutely, totally agree with you, <laughs> especially in a specialist position. Yeah, definitely. Now, if, if we look at 1973-74, it was a sort of tough time in Britain at the time. There was the miners' strike, and there were power yeah. issues there. So the football league got really disrupted. You'd made 32 appearances that season, and then you were faced with the possibility of playing on a Sunday. And you opted, due to your religious beliefs, to withdraw. Was that a really difficult decision at that time? It, it was a huge decision, but um, um, I was brought up in a village that um, went to church. There was no getting away from it. You had, you went uh, because of the fishermen. They wouldn't get to sea unless they knew there was something greater holding them or keeping them safe. And um, so, so they were just God-fearing people that believed that, that Jesus Christ died for them, redeemed them, and they went to worship them, basically, and they tried to honor them with their lives, and uh, that, that was the biggest thing, and um, I, I just didn't see uh, how I could play, so um, basically that's why I made that decision, and um, my family were all for it anyway, they, they wanted me not to play, so, and my father was a presenter in the United Free Church of Scotland, so he wouldn't have been happy anyway. But it was, a, it was a really big stand to make, and you were the first professional to actually yeah. decline to play. I mean, did you cop yeah. any stick from other players or the club, or were the, were no, the club no, no, really no, the understanding? Players, the, the players understood. I don't think the manager quite understood the same. Uh, because the following year I didn't play a bar a few games, but um, then I worked my way back in, and other managers came, and they thought because... Um, you went to church that um, you wouldn't be committed uh, and they only found out later that um, Bob Smith wouldn't play me for that reason when he came to Swindon um, but we played um, he had to play in a reserve game because we had no players and we were up against a very good Luton team and um, in all honesty we should have taken a good hammering but we won one nil. And I walked off the pitch afterwards and he said, you're playing the first team on Saturday. I said, why? He said, because I didn't know you could do what you could do. 
because he'd never watched me. And um, that was the disappointing thing. And then, <clears throat> then afterwards he said I was the best goalkeeper he'd ever managed. So I was, I was chuffed. Really. Absolutely. Um, I mean, people can change their minds. Yeah, when, when you look back, do you still, would you make that same decision again? I, I would. I did play on a, on a Sunday. I played on a couple of Sundays. Uh, not because, uh, but because we were playing at home and I could go to church and I played against Millwall and Van Allen West with there, who's now a vicar. And we were just saying it's, it's just really weird playing on Sunday because our bodies are not used to, we're normally used to resting on Sunday. So we're not the players that could drop a hat play any time, which they do now. Um, I did play on a Sunday at, at home and I got carried off. And so there's, um, there's different things, and I don't think that's anything to do saying that God was judging me, because I've been listening to an American minister, MacArthur, and, uh, and he was saying that if you're getting paid by someone, you really need to honour your contract, and you can still witness to people, even though you've played football. In fact, you might have a, a bigger witness. So, um, you know, listening to other people around now, there is, you know, ministers that are, are able to fit in with that. I read somewhere as well that you actually played on a Sunday when the team was on tour in Gibraltar because you actually thought it was a Saturday. Is there any uh, truth no, in no, that? No, that's, that's, that, that's someone being clever there. I, I, uh, we, we did play out there uh, on a Sunday. It was a friendly, but there was people there wanting to see <laughs> two British teams have a go on uh, And to be truthful, um, they were aware there was church there for people who thought it wasn't an issue. On that side. I mean, you had a terrific time and a great career, one club man at Swindon Town. And, and I mean, while you were there, you had a, a brilliant cup run, of course, against where we drew with Arsenal and got that famous victory back at the county ground. Was, was that a highlight for you, or were there other games in your career there that stand out? I, I think that season was a highlight because the, in the FA Cup and the League Cup, we, we had some fantastic games and uh, great crowds back at the county ground. And um, you don't quite appreciate it. So we, uh, four of us went back to um, a, a cup. Uh, people wanted to review it. There was that many supporters. There was 200 that paid, and there was another two or, or several hundred more that, that would have wanted to come but couldn't get there or couldn't get into the room. And they were just on about that season because it's the best cup run. Uh, apart from the League Cup, when they won the League Cup back in 69, that they've ever had for um, FA Cup and League Cup. And, um, yeah, it was, it was quite incredible, the, the teams that we played against. And we, we really should have been, shouldn't have been there, but we had a good team. And I, I did watch, someone sent me the YouTube um, one game when we played Tottenham. We, we got beaten the replay 2-1, but we outclassed them. Really outclassed them, and um, our manager bought a winger off ten minutes to go, and it just changed the pattern of the game. We looked lost because we were an attacking team, and they were such a good team that you you wouldn't want to be defending too long against them, Tottenham. And we were caught in the last ten minutes with, with, with two games, with two goals, but. Um, but I was, uh, our manager held his hand up at the time, so I made a mistake. We, sh we should have kept on attacking. 
No, I mean, they were great memories. I remember that That's season fantastic. well. <laughs> yeah, it, it was fantastic. Tottenham game was great. Um, the rules two games, brilliant. The Arsenal games, just amazing. But one game that stands out in particular was um, when George Best played for Fulham. Yep. Um, we beat them in the replay 5-0 back at the county ground and that was just an amazing game. And again, the crowd was huge in, in the county ground. And uh, cold night, Best, he was the only player in my team that wanted to play. And he, he was just different class. But um, although there was Marsh there, there was Bobby Moore, there was Alan Mullery, no one had the same passion as George Best. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a special one as well. It, it was just incredible, and it was great. I mean. No, I mean, obviously, but, but people obviously, don't forget. I mean, fans don't forget. Even you know, when when, when I get invited up, it's all the big cup games they want to know about. No, exactly, and I mean that was great to play those teams because in those days the the small teams often did cause an upset. Now it's a very remote chance. Very remote because um, yes, the standard. Although the standard now down to non-league is so good because there's been so many players from various countries coming across to, to the UK, which is good because it brings a huge amount of talent. So, so therefore the players that would normally have been in the first or the premiership teams are, are making their way down the leagues. So even the non-league is quite strong, actually. Yeah. I mean, if, if we... Because I've seen it, there's a lot of teams that I used to play against are in the non-league. That's true now, yeah, a lot of them have slipped yeah. out of the league. Yeah. But sadly, Jimmy, you didn't finish your career, I'm sure, the way you would have wanted. It was 1985 in October, your 13th season at the club, and uh, yeah. against Rochdale, there was a, a collision with Steve Johnson that broke yeah. your arm. I mean, it, it brought an end to your career straight away, didn't it, really? It did. Um, it, it was the... Severity of the injury, uh, the arm was smashed, and the dislocation fracture of the of the elbow, which finished me because uh, I'm still 30, 35 degrees off straight. I can't straighten it, my arm. So it's it uh, that 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 was the most disappointing thing because my son was only a month old, and that was very disappointing because he didn't see me play football. And um, yeah, it just happened. It, it, happened in the twinkling of an eye and it's you know your career's gone and I had um, three operations in Swindon I had a subsequent operation down here in Barnstable to remove the wire that was wrapped around to hold the arm that was just particles that were bringing together to, to make the bone up and um, but you know it's, it's good it's getting strong it's just that I haven't been able because I can't extend it I haven't been able to build muscle on my arm the forearm's good, but uh, the musky bit is not as musky as it should be. How did you deal with it at the time? Because, I mean, again, professional football, there probably wasn't the support mechanisms that there are today for players if something like that happens. Well, how I dealt with it is that John Nicholas, who was the, the club doctor, um, he insisted that I spent about six months where I was continually up the, the hospital on rehab. And... I was working with every uh, person possible to uh, to help me um, with the hand. I, I had to have three ops because I lost the, the nerve damage um, where the tissue was healing and it was time that the nerve and a knot was stopping any um, 
and the activity coming through to the hands, it was it was bent over really. But that was released, and then that, the physios were were working on me for, as I say, for six months, and I had, had amazing results. It, it was just the fact that I couldn't straighten the arm that finished me in the end. Yeah, it was very sad. Now I remember it well. I mean, Jimmy, I, I, my final question really is, you know, you took a stand all those years ago. You see now on social media players making um, statements about all sorts, human rights, civil rights. I mean, but how many of them actually make a stand? Do you look at that sometimes and think, you know, look, if you really believe in this, put your money where your mouth is kind of thing? I'm, I'm not going to judge people because it, it's very, very hard. But, um, I think people are as much as they can on things to, to see what they can. I think you're on about what's happening in Dubai at the moment. But um, I, th I think also we've got to remember um, we're actually playing football in their culture and we've got to, to be, dis be respectful to how they see things. You can't force anything on anyone, can you? No. And I think it's it's probably by there's more work done by kindness than with aggression. I've learned that to my cost. No, I think that's actually a great line. Well, well, Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. For me, it's been an absolute thrill to talk to you because I stood behind you for many years and you were one of my inspirations as to why I became a keeper. So it's great to finally get the chance to talk to you. Thank you. No, the pleasure is mine. When you get back to the UK, give us a call. If we can meet up, I'm more than willing to, to meet up any time. Because, uh, yeah. That would be fantastic. great. It's got great memories. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ashley. Hi, I'm Mark Duca, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, that was Jimmy Allen, who sadly his career came to a very sudden halt when he broke his arm in that game against Rochdale. Well, no, yeah, it was a bad, bad break. Yeah, and very, very sad. And, you know, in those days, the support wasn't really there the way it would be today. You know, there probably would have been far greater insurance than he would have received. Um, uh, yeah. But I think the thing with that interview, John, as well, that I find quite sad was when the manager changed how the manager that came in saw him playing the reserves and then put him straight in the first team, but hadn't watched him because he didn't realise he was so good and it just kind of left him to rot in the reserves just because of what he believed. And the thing I find really refreshing was the fact that all these years later, no regrets over that decision and would make the same decision again. Yeah. Oh, when it comes to making personal choices like that, you can't, um, you can't hold any grudges or bad, you know, if, if someone feels that strongly about it, you've got to just go with the flow with it, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, but the interesting thing as well there is he said never copped any, all the players yeah. totally understood with his stance yeah. and they stood by him, the manager as he said was a bit surprised but, you know, I think to me if, if any player in any sport, and I want to touch on some that have, makes a stand like that, I have nothing but respect for them. I might not agree with some of their positions that they stood but if you believe in something strong enough to make a stand, I respect you. Uh, yeah. Uh, does it matter what you're making the stand about? Or is it just the fact that you have the balls to stand up? Yeah, I, I actually, stand? I respect anybody that has the balls to stand up, put their head above the parapet, 
Then it comes down to the way they do it, because sometimes I think the way some people make their stand, I think they don't do it in a respectful manner. If you're playing in a national team in a national jersey, do you have the right to do that? No, I don't believe you do, because this is what I wrote on my blog with the armband issue at the World Cup at the moment, is who are you representing when you're putting on that shirt? You're, it's like if you play for a club, like when you play for Fremantle Coburn Hockey Club, yeah. you're representing that club, you're representing everyone who's gone before, who's played at that club, the reputation of that club, the supporters of that club, the sponsors of that club. And the same applies, when, but it's bigger when you play for the national team because you're representing that country and the people and of that all country. of the, the views within that country. Correct. Not just the views Correct. That you hold. Because, you know, you may stand up for one thing that you believe in, but what about the people who have the opposite view? Mm. Where's the chance for them to have somebody air their voice or hear their voice as well? So, yeah, I don't agree with it. Uh, absolutely. And I think what you were touching on before is once the pitch, the, there should be nothing. It should be just the national colours. Yeah. But I wanted to look at some of the people who've made stands. And, I mean, one that sprung to mind straight away was Eric Little of Chariots of Fire fame. You know, he was a guy who'd played rugby for Scotland. Uh, and then, of course, come the Olympic Games um, in, was it Amsterdam, wasn't it, where he wasn't prepared to run because of the, his religious beliefs again on a Sunday. And... Unlike the film, this wasn't something that happened as they were on their way to the games. It was actually planned a long way out, and he said he wouldn't run. So he didn't run in the 100 metres, but he did run in the 200 metres and the 401 gold in the 400 metres. And I would recommend an absolutely amazing book called For the Glory about Eric Little's life, written by Duncan Hamilton. It would be one of my favourite books that I've read in recent years and uh, actually brought a tear to my eye. But, I mean, you've also got then... Before Colin Kaepernick, you know, took the stand or took the knee, rather, he didn't stand, did he? Um, there was a, a. How did that work out for him, poor fellow? Well, again, yeah, I mean, he <laughs> lost his career yeah. completely, but he still stood by what he believed in. But, I mean, there was, if you remember, there was a, the Denver Nuggets had uh, refused to stand for the U.S. flag. That was when, obviously, Colin Kaepernick. But uh, in 1990, Chris Jackson was a player who'd converted to Islam and changed his name to Muhammad Abdul Rauf and uh, he then viewed the public flag as a symbol this was the American flag as a symbol of oppression and racism and look that was his belief yeah, John yeah, yeah. No, no, and he he was suspended by the NBA and traded from the team and eventually left the professional sport entirely based on those beliefs now I don't know enough about how outspoken he was on that but again he was he was somebody again that was prepared to stand by what they believed, whether it was right or wrong. I mean, one of the yeah, ones... Muhammad Ali. Yeah, Muhammad Ali is another one. I mean, the one I'm very... I'm actually looking to make a documentary, and if anyone wants to lend us some funding, because we're just starting on this one, um, is Vera Kozlowska from the Czech Republic. Now, she is a little-known person who, outside of Czechoslovakia, or the Czech Republic as it is today, but... In 1968, the Russian tanks rolled into Czechoslovakia. She had to run off into the woods to train to go. She spoke out against the Russians, and they tried to stop her going to Mexico. She then went to Mexico uh, and won the gold medal. The Russians protested in one of the events in the gymnastics, and she had to share the gold medal with the Russian athlete. And as the Russian anthem played and the flag was raised, she just stood on the podium, and rather than looking as they all do at the flag with a tear in their eye, 
she just turned her head away and looked down at the ground. And it was her protest, and she did that twice on the medal podium. When she went back to the Czech Republic, she was banned from ever participating again and leaving the country. And she took that stance and, you know, didn't agree with the people that had taken over her country. And again, was prepared to take those consequences. And I think that's the thing where you have to respect people who make a stand and are prepared for the consequences that they take. What do we do in a situation like with the Russian-Ukraine war at the moment? Yeah. It's... I mean, you know, banning Russian athletes. Is that the right step to take? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one because some athletes would be in favour of the invasion of Ukraine, whereas some have spoken out and said they're not in favour of it, and I don't know how their lives are back in Russia. I mean, because... Uh... You know, it's not the only conflict going on in the world. Oh, absolutely. And, and we've, I mean, let's be honest, the British and the Americans wouldn't have been taking part in a lot of things if we'd banned them for the influence or the inclu- in yeah, yeah, the, the, the part they've played in certain conflicts well, like, around the world. The Americans have invaded lots of countries and continue to turn up at Olympic Games, haven't they? Yeah. Um, I mean, then you've got to look at the UN and at how all the countries that make up the forces of the UN, because I'm convinced sometimes the UN actually create trouble spots to justify their own existence. Ooh! But, I mean, when you consider the, at, at the moment, the Ukraines are basically being backed by the West. I mean, every, every country in Western Europe is, and the US are sending them piles of equipment. So we're, we are directly, the rest of the world, involved in this conflict as well. Yeah, so do, as you, going back to your question, do we have a right to suspend Russia? Because there's some Ukrainians that want Russia to come and invade. There's lots that didn't, but it's such a complex situation. Is is this a a point where sport actually should get involved by doing this? But, But this is the problem, because a lot of these issues are actually far more complex than they appear. I mean, if we go back to Kathy Freeman, there's there's one that you kind of... She was told by the IOC that if she won gold in Sydney Olympics because she'd carried the Aboriginal flag and the the Commonwealth Games, she was not to do that at the Olympic Games. Yet the interesting thing was in 1995, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, Paul Keating, had officially made the Aboriginal flag a national flag. So therefore, and I think if I'm right, the IOC regulation said you may only carry your national flag. So if the Aboriginal flag has been deemed a national flag in Australia, so it is recognised that legally, what she did, there was nothing wrong with it to carry both flags. Can you have two flags? Why not? You know? Well, do you, you, you have take a choice you, of which well, flag well, you well, fly? But, but you look, New Zealand has two national anthems. Oh, yeah, fair enough. So they still have God Save the King, as it would be now, and they have their own God Defend New Zealand. So they are two official national anthems. Okay. So I would think that, yeah, you probably could have two flags. Do they sing them both? No, they tend to sing the, the new one, the God Defend New Zealand. Rather, certainly at the sporting events I've been to, that's been the one that I've heard played most of the time, but they've never kind of wiped the other one away. So, fair enough. Good on them. But it is interesting, and look, I, I have a lot of respect for many of these athletes who have taken a stance at some stage during their career. Um, there was another one I came across, actually, John, when I was researching for this, was 
uh, Sandy Koufax. Have you heard yeah, of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, he was uh, at the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they were playing the Minnesota Twins in Game 1 of the 1965 World Series. The game fell on Yom Kippur. Now, obviously, that's the holiest day of the Jewish faith, yeah. and... Kufax, despite being the Dodgers' best pitcher, he just said, no, I cannot play. And so he stuck to his faith and uh, pitched game two of the series. And the Dodgers ended up beating the Twins, though, in seven games. And he was named MVP of the series, even though he didn't play that one game. But It's interesting because sitting here, we would say, well, that's fair enough. You're Jewish, Yom Kippur, I, I get it. Most people would say, yeah. fair enough, mate. Okay, once, it's a one-off thing, it's not like... But what would, because what we're seeing increasingly more of these days is um, sport on Christmas Day. What would the reaction if a Christian stood up and said, I'm not playing, it's Christmas Day, I'm not playing. Yeah. Or Good Friday. Exactly. But it was interesting, I just read a book like, it was called Does Your Rabbi Know You're Here? Fantastic, about Jewish footballers in Britain. Yeah. And it was amazing how after the war so many of them changed their names and anglicised them so that they could play in the league and people, and they wouldn't mm-hmm. reveal that they were Jewish. <laughs> Um, because they weren't meant to play. And it's, it's a, I recommend that again. It's a fantastic book to give you a real insight into how hard it was to be of the Jewish faith wanting to be a professional footballer. Certainly we've discussed plenty there, John. <laughs> I need a rest. See ya. We'll be back next week.